This is a Federal News Network podcast. The General Services Administration heard the complaints and frustrations of vendors for how long it took to modify their old reliable multiple award schedule contract. Irv Kohler, the Assistant Commissioner of the Office of General Supplies and Services in GSA's Federal Acquisition Service, called it a painful six months in the middle of last year. He tells executive editor Jason Miller about how GSA pulled out all the stops to improve the timeline and continue to address that modification process. Step one was resources. Uh, We were a little bit underfunded for a while. We've corrected for that. We've also surged in some contractor support. And then the midterm will be a focus on the data coming in itself so we can get some better information with inflation-adjusted numbers. And then longer term, the catalog program will be the answer because it'll be more real-time and we'll have better access to the information more quickly. Do you have a sense now of each mod is different, I get that, but do you have an average? It takes usually X amount of days, X amount of weeks or hours. One set I saw last night, a, a regular modification gets done in about 10 days. And the EPAs, depending on how many items are in there, because some of them can be 110,000 at a time, they've, they've been in as many as 30 days. Do you feel like the industry is in a better place today than they were a month, two months, six months ago when it comes to these modifications? Not just from your perspective, but understanding the process and understanding why they may take a little longer than anyone would hope? I would say yes. We've we've done some pretty good outreach. You know, we've had a little back and forth. There's always a little friction in this space. But overall, I think the communications have been good between the two parties, and we're going to continue to do that. It's it's what we need to be doing is working with folks to, to get to the right answer, which is an efficient, effective way of getting through the process so we get the information we need and we get their stuff on timely. You mentioned the data piece. You mentioned the 4P platform. Is it just strict pricing data? How much does a widget cost today? How much did it cost a year ago? Or is there anything more you can tell me about what kind of data you're looking at? It's a really big combination of data. I don't know every component, but their TDR data will be added for the first time this time. We're going to get commercial pricing information from large big box real retailers. Uh, we have the schedules pricing information in there as well. So we're trying to get a better mix of not just one thing from one source, but a good cross-section of the overall market, and then really focusing on that OEM part number and description so we can do apples-to-apples comparisons and then really get through the modification process more quickly. Because right now the data is a little bit murky at times of you put a J in front of all your part numbers, I put an E in front of all mine, it makes it tougher. But a lot of work has been poured into that to make it substantially better than it was, and then the additional sources really really rounded out. So, again, we can get through with high confidence the price is reasonable. Is there any concern that you're going to do all this extra work and then inflation is going to come down and then you have to redo this work? It's probably good news. It would be a good news story in some ways, but is that a concern on yours end? No. The, the work is absolutely worth it because I think the opposite is going to happen. When inflation goes down, I don't think anyone's going to be running to me saying, hey, Irv, let me reduce prices. But because we're taking a more robust, sustainable approach to the pricing information, we're going to know that information as well. So then we may come back to industry and say, hey, it's time to renegotiate pricing. We don't have to necessarily wait. So I think it's just a long-term, it's a necessary component in the business that I'm in. You mentioned the catalog a couple of times, and what was I found interesting, because I know you all put a notice out saying, hey, if you're on time delivery, if you can't tell us at least 50% of the time, we're going to remove you from the schedules. You said about 50 companies. Talk a little bit about that. Did that wake people up, not the removal of 50 companies, but that process, to, hey, we've got to get better data to understand your delivery challenges and the supply chain? I think so. Time will tell. It's 50 out of about 
4,000 um, that could have been impacted. So the, the population is small, and we keep signaling what we're doing. I think as we go from 50% to 60%, we're going to have a few more. When we go to 60 to 70, we'll have a few more. But we're still going to be communicating. Customers need to know this information because they do. It's like you and I, anyone else. And so if we, we have to keep raising that threshold because it's a commercial standard, and that's, that's where we need to get to. And the 50 that you did end up removing, each one's different, I understand that. But is there something you could say, like, well, they had trouble doing this or they were just out of business? 48 of them were out of business or something, that, so that's why they couldn't give you on time. Was there anything that trend-wise that you'd point to about why they had trouble? It was a bit of a mix. Of the 50 we sent suspension notices to, I think it was 35, came back the next day and said, hey, I can do it. Uh, and so we put them back on, and we're working with them to make sure that they can meet the standards. So this has been a pretty light touch so far. We're trying to be super accommodating. We want to keep small businesses in the market. We want to give them what we can. Uh, at the same time, we do have these standards to meet because customers absolutely need to, they need to know when they're going to get their stuff or if the order is canceled. I'm going to continue down that with the marketplace a little bit, the catalog. You mentioned you're, uh, you're looking at prices, and you said something to the effect of there's uh, 110,000 products, but only 12,000 are being bought. Mm-hmm. Can you clarify what you mean by that? Meaning companies are offering all these products, but really agencies are only buying a certain a small percentage? In one specific example, Office Supplies, there was a vendor that had a large catalog, more than 100,000. But as we've gone, as we've gone through... The purchase histories, only about 12,000 items are bought. And so we're looking at it saying, hey, this this doesn't make sense for any of us because we're putting a lot of resources into stuff's not bought 85% of the time. It clogs up the system. And so to do that, everyone worries that, hey, if I don't have all this stuff on there, you won't add it fast enough. And that's where I have to come through sort of with my end of the deal of how am I going to make that process a reality. Um, but there's a lot of things out there, and we want to manage what we need to manage. And then there's a little bit of risk associated. Um, but we're going to go through the analytics side of it, and uh, once we get the code cracked, we're, we'll be moving out. Is there any concern that you go to a grocery store and they sell something that maybe they don't sell, it's not a big leader, meaning like toothpicks. You buy it once, you may not buy it again, but you got to have toothpicks. Is there any concern there that you, you'll maybe get rid of something that people buy annually or once every other year that then all of a sudden they won't be able to find it? The risk associated with removing an item might be purchased right now we consider to be low. Uh, we've picked up 12,000 items that have ever been purchased, not purchased in volume or anything else ever. So there are one-offs. So I think the risk is relatively low because we're picking everything that's ever been bought. Um, but it's a legitimate concern from industry, but that's why we're going to do a bunch of industry days, do the outreach, make sure we have the information we need. And really it's going to be about having a fast modification process that allows items to be added. Figuring that out, that's what my plan is to kind of solve for that problem. And this is one example of one company. I imagine, are you going to go through this data for a lot of your biggest or all of the companies, or what's the plan? Because you mentioned talking, creating potentially a market basket of items. We're going to start with office supplies. That's going to be our test case. We're going to do every vendor there, and then that's how we're going to come up with the market basket. Every product brought from every vendor, that'll be the starting market basket. And then we'll go from there. So that those who have bigger catalogs will get smaller. Those who have smaller catalogs, hey, they can choose to manage it how they do. Um, but the current solicitation is written in such a way that vendors are encouraged to provide their whole catalog. We're kind of turning that over a little bit because we don't want all of those things uh, on a government contract. And so it, and it'll make it more efficient to manage it. And I was going to ask you that. That was a great 
segue because part of this is also the impact on GSA. And if you're managing 110,000 items, that takes storage and technology and and, and people. Is that, is that the other piece of this, the, the resource impact? A hundred percent. I mean, it, it's and it's for both sides. I mean, if if no one's buying this stuff, why are we doing it? Uh, and it, it, it just has to happen that way because it's part of the resource load on us. If I'm really evaluating an EPA mod with 110,000 items and only 12,000 are being purchased, that does not make sense for anyone, and, and the customer is losing out because the stuff they actually need isn't getting through. Irv Kohler is Assistant Commissioner of the Office of General Supplies and Services in the Federal Acquisition Service at GSA, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, Visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they ba- they basically were in d- direct care. And and I will say, and on a obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, pr- profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes. And um, so I was I was drawn when I, I and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone. And I thought, well, you know, I'll take a look at it and see, see you know, throw, uh, send in some my information. And lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C., and, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story, like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, so often when he'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. 
Um, and but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and I mean, we work hard and you know, we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day. But uh, man, you see, it, it, and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Everyone yeah. is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Triver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people and, and it doesn't have to be. Uh, it's not just school age. It's it's, uh, you know, we say nine to ninety nine or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn.
from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll uh, talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast. So I switched to Boost Mobile and got this free Samsung Galaxy A23 5G phone. Why do you think they call it the Galaxy? Maybe because the Samsung Galaxy A23 has a huge screen, and galaxies are huge gravitationally bound systems of stars rotating around a supermassive black hole. And the phone is free? When you switch to Boost Mobile. Cool. You lost me at gravitationally bound. Switch to Boost and get a free Samsung Galaxy A23 5G phone. Boost Mobile. Unleash your power. Limited time offer while supplies last. New customers only. Excludes tax. One device offer per line. Only available on certain networks. 5G not available everywhere. Additional restrictions apply. See local Boost Mobile store for details. With Progressive's Name Your Price tool, you can find options that fit your budget. Because giving you options is the right thing to do. Oh, yeah, like when I hold the door for someone. Sure, it may be weird if I don't time it right, and they're a little too far away, and oh, now they're running. And we're both asking ourselves, is it worth it to run instead of just, you know, letting them open their own door? But still, it's the right thing to do. So get options based on your needs with Progressive's Name Your Price tool. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and third-party insurers. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. By now, you know that sound. It's the sound of the Home Depot. But what about those sounds? Those are the sounds of an LG wash tower with ultra-large capacity, serving up a powerful yet gentle clean in just 29 minutes. Making this the sound of savings on the best appliance brands. The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Get up to 25% off the LG wash tower with ultra-large capacity and reduced wash time. Pricing valid January 5th through January 25th, 2023. Gas dryer extra. U.S. only. See store online for details. Did you know Nissan EVs have traveled 8 billion miles? Just a quick trip to Pluto and back. And what did we learn along the way? Well, that an EV can take on the world, like the Nissan LEAF. It can move racing forward and take your breath away, like the all-new Nissan Aria. We learned to make EVs that electrify. 8 billion miles driven by LEAF owners globally since 2010. Aria not yet available for purchase. Expected availability late fall. Subject to change.